You're listening to Spinning Around with Harley Minogue on Area 3000. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome back, me. Hope you're all enjoying this fantastic Monday night, and we've got one special guest from Eora for you, and trust me, they are super spicy and sensational. Folks, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, be it cooking, working, or twerking, thank you once again, as always, for tuning in for more conversations and mixes with dance music's latest and greatest. My next guest this week has been riding high since their high-energy boiler room set with Lost Sundays. Well known to many for their work as ex-managing editor of Purple Sneakers, they're a prolific DJ, producer, radio host, copywriter, and space maker for Femme and GNC communities. They've performed as one-third of national touring act Purple Sneakers DJs at Splendor, Listen Out, Falls, Blue Line Steppers, and more, and has even supported the likes of Octave One and Paul Wolford on their own as well. Fans of Sydney Friends, FBI Radio, may recognise their voice from Pretty Broad, The Purple Sneaker Show, and The Selector, and many will recognise their writing for Music Feeds and the revered NLV Records as well. They've got a debut single coming out to follow up their contributions to Parry Talks and Sticky Tapes, but it sounds like there are no details yet. Perhaps we'll find out more tonight. It gives me the utmost pleasure to be speaking to someone who has and continues to do so much for the music scene in Australia, and I can't wait to see what the emotions are since the highlights of many DJs' careers, The Boiler Room. My guest is none other than the wordsmith, selector, the dot connector, Caitlin Medcalf. Hey, Caitlin, welcome to the show. How are you going? Hi, thank you so much for that heartwarming interview. That was oh, that introduction. That was so beautiful. Thank you. Oh, I hope you'll be saying the same <laughs> for the interview very soon. I, I have to ask you, though, uh, what is your obsession with big fluffy cakes? Big fluffy cakes. I love cakes. Well, I, I actually work in hospitality. That's my like kind of day job. Oh, yes. yes. So I'm, I'm a cook by some days a week, I guess, and a DJ by night, you could say. Excellent. Nice. And so you have to make cakes on the regular. Well, I, I make like some kind, like we bake some things at the cafe that I work at, but I like to do a lot of baking in my spare time. Ooh. So my housemates definitely get to indulge a lot in my baking habits, nice. which is nice for them. Have you mastered the wobbly jiggliness of the Japanese souffle cheesecake yet? You know, I was going to make that for my birthday. I was all set on doing it. And then at the last minute, I was like, I really want a banoffee pie. So I made a banoffee pie instead. Ooh. So I'm yet I'm, I'm yet to master the Japanese souffle, but it's definitely on my list. How many recipes do you reckon you know off the top of your head? Probably not that many, to be honest, but I reckon more than I would think I'd know. I want to say maybe like 40 to 50. Fuck, that's quite a bit. I feel like it's not a lot, but it feels like quite a lot. But it feels like once you get down the basics of cooking, right, like you can pretty much freestyle anything, right? It's true, yeah. And I feel like the more you cook too, the more you kind of start to learn what you don't like cooking and what you do like cooking and it starts to actually become something really enjoyable. What what don't you like cooking? Oh, I th- <laughs> that's actually a really good question. I mean, I don't eat meat, so I don't really like cooking meat. Um, mm. But, you know, I work at a cafe, I kind of cook whatever I have to cook sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I really love cooking. I mean, I make a lot of lasagna. That's... Oh, we're, we're, <laughs> we're, yes. We're big, we're big Garfield fans. Excellent. How many, uh, how many yeah. bags of cheese do you put in one lasagna? Because I put in way too much. That's my thing. It's true. The secret is the pizza plus cheese. you got to get like that combination of like the mozzarella and the... Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> this is the secret, people. You can't just go for mozzarella. You have to go for the that mixture, mozzarella, cheddar, and I believe they put Adam yes. uh, as well in there. I'm and and then sure. a bit of Parmesan on the top for like a bit of crust. It's 
Chef's kiss. <laughs> well, uh, what got you into cooking? I mean, was it something that you sort of picked up out of necessity because you couldn't feed yourself or was it more just something that you actually, you know, fell in love with? It's pretty funny. I So I started working in hospitality when I was 17. I was at, in high school and I just got like a local job at a cafe doing like waitressing. Mm. And then I moved over to Grilled and mm. there's like a lot of, I mean, everyone's kind of had their fast food stint, right? Oh, yeah. Um, but I'm, I worked there for like two and a half years and yeah, I basically learned a lot of kitchen skills there. And then after that, I decided after I finished uni, I got a job closer to home and I've been working for these guys for four years now. Oh. Um, I've just, they've just opened a new cafe in Newtown. So I've moved over there now and it's just, it's great. Like I work as a cook there. They're all really passionate. I've learned a lot from them, but yeah, it's great. It's a great little, uh, bougie, uh, cafe in Newtown. Fantastic. <laughs> Um, oh, it's so nice. They're really great guys. And working for Grilled throughout uni as well must be great because you get to have free burgers whenever you're done. Oh, I wish they were that lenient with it. Oh, what? <laughs> really? Yeah, they were pretty. Oh. They were pretty. They were real sticklers. And I mean, I got to say, I there's a lot of dodgy shit that goes on behind the scenes. Oh, I see. With Grilled, so I'm not going to give them any more of my money. But fantastic. Well, look, thank you to our sponsors, Grilled, for uh, <laughs> making this show possible. Really appreciate the time. Shout out. <laughs> <laughs> we are not sponsored by Grilled. Please do not sue us. Um, speaking of the past, by the way, yes. um, I heard that you also used to play and coach softball yes. back in the day. Do you still play these days? No, I t- actually, it's really funny. I don't play anymore, but I've been watching the, the Olympic team kind of oh, getting on through. How's Australia looking? Um, They lost the first game to Japan. Oh, um, I no. mean, well, Japan have, I think they have the best team in the world. I mean, they have mm-hmm. like a paid league over there. So, you know, people who play softball over there can actually make like a living off of it. Right. Whereas we don't have that here. So a lot of players here have to like go overseas, go to America, go to Europe, go to Japan, even to like actually get to play all year round. Is what you're saying is that the team of Australian softball is just a team of filthy casuals? (laughs) I mean, that's the Australian way of life, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, vice versa. (laughs) No allegiance to anywhere. Exactly. No, that's fantastic. Did you you like playing softball back in the day? I mean, you must I really did. I think... um, you know, I haven't played for, I, I stopped playing when I was 18 because I kind of had to choose between work or playing sport on the weekend. But oh, yeah. I think the thing I missed the most about it was just spending so much time with my family. Like mm. that was the thing, like my mom and all three of my younger sisters used to play and my dad used to coach. So like we'd spend the entire day there wow. on Saturday. So you're from a family of softball players. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, wow. I think no one plays anymore. My sister that's like two years younger than me, she was playing she was playing really high level. Like she, I reckon if she stuck with it, she would have made the Olympic team. But she was in the um, under twenty threes, wasn't she? Yeah, I think she was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah there you go. Fantastic. <laughs> soft cakes, soft ball, but also you used to work in the software department at JB Hi-Fi back in twenty thirteen. <laughs> How do you know this? This is like some Nardwar shit. I love this. Yes, I did. I did. I, I loved working for JB Hi-Fi. Nice. It was great. Uh, did you, uh, were you doing sales or were you doing like uh, sort of support center stuff? What were you doing? So I was working in uh, C- like CDs and DVDs. Oh. So I was kind of like splitting my time between the two. So we didn't really do any sales. But mm-hmm. I mean, my favorite part of the job was like, getting to put out new CDs and like getting to write reviews as well. That was really fun. Yes. Fantastic. Was that where you first started to write uh, music reviews? No, I started writing um, probably two years before that. Yeah. I was in year 11 when I started writing. So Mm -hmm. I think that was just like a continuation of what I was already doing. You've just been on the pen since you were young. Like (laughs) (laughs) what, uh, what inspired you to do it though? It's weird to think that. I mean, 
my earliest memory of kind of wanting to step into music, I think I, w- I was in year 11, no, I was in year 10. And you know, when you get into that part of high school and they start talking to you about like, oh, you really need to start thinking about what you want to do with the rest of your life. And you're mm-hmm. kind of having all these internally existentially crushing conversations with yourself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, I, and I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And I think pursuing a career in music is not something that you get taught in high school because I think it's like really not a desired I don't know. It's just not a profitable, a profitable industry or like a revered industry to work in, in terms of like the, what the education sector deems, you know, (laughs) successful. So it's not investment banking. That's for sure. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So (laughs) I, I, I started thinking about what it was that I really liked and I really liked music and I was like, well, maybe I'll see if I can get a job in music. And I was like scrolling through pedestrian. Shut up pedestrian. (laughs) Shut up pedestrian. They're, they're like, creative job section is amazing yeah for sure um but i saw purple sneakers were looking for contributors um which was great it was like really low level commitment and also like really great for someone who did had no experience writing about music Mm. so yeah i applied and i remember the editor at the time uh gabe gleason he is like he used to be part of a duo called indian summer oh um, back in the day wow yeah yeah part of indians oh wow yeah yeah so he used to be the editor of purple sneakers back in the day and he basically was like yeah um if you can like maybe write one or two like practice articles show them to me and i'll see if i can get you some you know weekly kind of things to write about and yeah that's kind of how it started it seems like writing has been a big thing for you but i have seen some of the headlines that you've written for uh, <laughs> for the majority of your career. Um, some of them include Guns N' Roses now have an official line of bongs. Um, watch Guy Fieri headbanging at a Slipknot show. And uh, <laughs> Donald Glover chats the future of Childish Gambino while dressed as a lion. So I have to ask you, has writing headlines like this or news articles like this started to shake your love or build your love for writing and music journalism? That is a really good question. Um, I think when I first started writing, particularly for music feeds, because I think it's such a, they they cover such a broad range of music, you know, it's not like Purple Sneakers where it's pretty niche. Mm. Um, I think I first started out, uh, there's a real, I don't know, I think now that I've been doing it for a couple of years, I've really got the format down of like, okay, this is what I need to say in the article. This is how to be impartial. And this is what I kind of need to, you know, link back to. And I found the voice of it. But for a while, I kind of struggled because I just didn't really care about a lot of the things I was writing about. Yeah. Um, but I think in a way, it's definitely enhanced my love for writing. I think because I still get to do a lot of the things that I love on the side. Like my the my favorite writing that I've been doing recently has been for NLV Records, doing copywriting. Nice. And I think just the fact that I've been able to like continue to flex my writing muscles, even though I'm not working for Purple Sneakers anymore, has just, I don't know, I, I feel grateful to be able to just keep those skills up in like a kind of low pressure environment. Are you saying that you don't care about uh, little Uzi Vert almost completing documentation <laughs> to legally own a planet? I feel like I care about that. That sounds fucking crazy. You know, <laughs> you know what? I think I actually didn't even know about that. My boyfriend at the time, oh, like a few days ago, I was writing and he's like, oh, did you see this thing about little Uzi Vert? I was like, nope, but I'm going to write about it now. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it can't have been as bad as uh, when Azealia Banks boiled the remains of her dead cat. That, that, yeah. I, that is a fucking whack headline. Oh, my God. You know what, though? Like, looking into that story, I actually 
I remember writing that piece because I felt a bit, I like understand where she was coming from. It was like an act of ritual for her religion. Mm. And I think as a woman of color as well, like her religion is something that's very serious to her. Mm. But I think a lot of people just took that as, oh, she's boiling her cat for like no reason whatsoever. (laughs) And I was like, oh, there's more context to this. And I kind of understand the nuances of like a person of color having this, um, these kind of rituals surrounded with their religion. So I felt a bit like, I don't want to write about this in a way that I'm shitting on her, but it's still a bit absurd. I think, yeah, the the act itself, completely isolated from the context in a vacuum, is completely insane. Oh, it's it, bonkers. I, <laughs> I look at that, I'm like, oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> no, with um with the new gig at NLV Records, <clears throat> uh, how did you how did you line that up? What, what actually happened for you to start working with one of the, the best in the underground these days? It's really funny. I it was a very gradual thing. I think like, I don't actually remember a specific day where I was like, okay, now I'm copywriting for NLV records. It just kind of started as like a, I think Nina had like a publicity team and she was kind of like, Oh, you know what? I want to get someone else on board. And like my rates are definitely a lot less than, you know, a proper publicist. But I think she also likes just this, I think everyone in her team is very independent mm. and I feel like that's the vibe. She, she really, I think especially having a woman on board to do the job was something that really was passionate of something she is really passionate about. Mm. So yeah, I just started kind of gradually, you know, I did like one or two bits of copy here or there. And I think it's been like two or three years now. And now I'm here doing like last week I did three write-ups for her. Wow. I'm going to do like a day on the website soon. Like they are so busy now. Yeah, Nina is, Nina is seriously probably the most hardworking, you know, business person in music at the moment, I would say. 100% agree. I actually can't understand how she does it. I feel like she doesn't sleep. No, you know I mean? literally. <laughs> God, I've, uh, I sent email. I sent an email over to her at like, what was it? Four or 5am once. And she responded like straight away. I was like, geez, <laughs> like, what is going on? This is an anomaly for me. It seems like it's regular yeah. um, for her. What's it like working with uh, Nina from that perspective? She is fantastic. She is the most organized, passionate, and succinct person I've ever met. Like, mm. I, I, I don't know how she finds the time in the day to run the label, manage artists, and make her own music. Like, that is insane to me. Oh, so I think, God. you know, the way she communicates, I think, really translates to the way that she runs everything in her life. Mm. Like, she is, she knows what she wants. She works hard for it. And at the same time, she's a very assertive person. Yes. Um, and I really respect that about her. Like, if there is a space that she's in where she's not comfortable or she has an artist in a space that they're not comfortable, like, she will be the first person to say something about that and try to create, you know, change that space to make room for that person. And, mm. like, that, I think, is so rare to find in this industry. Yeah. Like, she has truly created her own power, and I respect that so much. She she really is an inspiration, hey? <laughs> oh, for sure. She's been an inspiration of mine for such a long time. So it's, like, actually, like... 18 year old me would be kind of like yay if she knew that I was <laughs> working for her now <laughs> in terms of other moments that have happened in your life where 18 year old you would be like Woo. Uh, <laughs> have to include the Lost Sundays boiler room set holy crap <laughs> that is a, a pinnacle for a lot of people's careers uh, when it comes to the art of DJing how did you feel? Give me the full debrief. What were the emotions like? Were you crying? How many times did you cry? <laughs> All of that. Oh, it was like, I, like I'm not even generalizing when I say this, but I think it was probably the best moment of my whole life. Like, <laughs> that, <laughs> like that has to be like top one. Um, I don't know. It was really weird because I think it all came about, I mean, just to preface the whole boiler room itself, like I was having a real moment of um, – 
just feeling really low. Like I was going for a few jobs. Um, I was going for a job at Spotify and I was going for a job at FBI and I got like really far in the Spotify job to the last round and I didn't get the job and I was really bummed about it. Uh, they're and, lost, they're lost. Yeah, but you, at the time I was like a bit kind of pissed off. I was like, oh, you know, I actually have the experience for this role and whatever. But then I was I was trying to t- – and then I didn't get the FBI job either. So I was like trying to tell myself, I was like, no, the universe has other plans for you. Mm. Just like just wait and see. And then like a week or two later I got a call from Sebastian from Lost Sundays and he was like, oh, we're just letting you know we're doing the spoiler room and I've put your name forward. He's like, oh, nothing's confirmed yet, but I'll just kind of keep you posted as we go along. And I was at work at the time at the cafe <laughs> and I just went back inside and everyone's like, what was that about? I was like, oh, my God, you're never going to believe it. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then I got the call and I was kind of like, okay, maybe, I don't know, I don't have any kind of religion or anything, but I definitely believe in, you know, the universe rewards you or has other plans for you. And so when that moment came, I was like, okay, that kind of makes sense as to why I didn't get those jobs now. All the luck was compiling into this one event. Yeah, it was really strange. It all kind of made sense to me for, I had a bit of a moment of clarity, which was really great. And so, yeah, I worked really, really hard in the lead up. I definitely had, uh, I mean, yeah, it was kind of a weird situation because I kind of got the call and there was like a bit of a brief as to what I needed to play. And I was a little bit uh, taken back by that. <laughs> what, what did they say? I'm interested to know. Well, this. I mean, it was not a bad thing, but he was kind of like, oh, this is our crowd. Everyone kind of likes a bit more like houseier music. Um, can we just keep it a bit more low key? I was like, OK, mm. I guess I can try and stick to that for the boiler room. And then <laughs> as the day, yeah, I, I don't know. I was a bit like, oh, I don't really play that much house music, yeah. <laughs> like light house music anyway. So I was like, OK, I'll see what I can do. And then I was like, I'll, you know, I'll just play it on ear. I'll play it by ear on the day, see how it goes. And I prepared like a couple of different roads that I could have gone down. Mm. And I think for the most part, everyone really did go rogue and kind of just played whatever they wanted. Yep. So I was like, <laughs> okay, cool. I have permission to like loosen up a little bit. What were the, uh, what were the emotions like while you were playing? When I spoke to um, Cassettes for Kids, he said that he essentially blacked out for most of it and his only memory of it is what's on the video (laughs) i gotta say i was pretty similar i think i was like really laser focused yeah and i I was really lucky like my boyfriend and my best friend were like camped out right behind me yes and they were great i think it's really funny like my boyfriend is one of those people who'll go to a club and he'll kind of just like stand there and bop along but he won't dance and now there's like a whole hour video of him on the internet dancing i'm like yes "Yes." this is like immortalized forever it's great (laughs) um but yeah, in terms of just like, I, I think I was just laser focused. I practiced my set a million times. Mm. So I was just trying to like, I, I I don't know. I think I was trying to like let it happen intuitively, but also like try to have fun because yeah. I was like, oh, I'm on camera. I need to not be so like in, in my own head about it. <laughs> How does being on camera affect the way you play? Do you feel like it affects the way you play? The, okay. The biggest thing that I noticed, I don't know about you, but if I'm DJing and I have nothing to do with my hands, I'll just sit there and like touch everything. I won't yeah, move anything, yeah. but I'll just touch everything. Like I'll touch the faders, yep. I'll touch the EQ knobs. And I know, I think the week leading up to it, I noticed that I was doing a lot of that. And yep. I was like, people are going to watch this back and be like, she's literally doing nothing. <laughs> So. But it's a, it's a nerves thing. Like, like you know, when you're at a house party and you've got like a, a bottle of whatever beer or, and you're like peeling at the sticker, it's yes. just a nerves thing, right? Like you're just fiddling with something totally. to keep you occupied. I, yeah, I definitely felt like conscious of that. But then I was, I think there were just so many other things I was conscious of. I was just like, just let it go. Just do it. What were, <laughs> what were you conscious of? 
throughout the whole thing? What was catching your attention? Oh, that is a good question. There was like next to me, they had the um, turntable spinning and they had this little, oh, the little octopus, octopus sitting on the turntable. <laughs> it was really cute. But then it disappeared halfway through for a little bit. And I was like, oh, where'd it go? I don't know what's going on. And then halfway through the set, these girls, I, I felt someone like touching my butt. And I was like, what's going on? I turned around. These girls were trying to put like a sticker on my butt. And I, was, and, I turned, and I was like, I don't want to get angry at them. But I turned around. And I was like, what are you doing? Oh, shit. And, Oh. And they were like, oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I mean, that, just, that is a bit yeah. intrusive. Um, it, was, it was, it was, it definitely shook me. I was kind of like, oh, I'm trying to do this thing and people are like touching me on the behind. What's going on? Yeah, that doesn't seem too nice. Yeah. But, um, it's all right. One of the things that I did notice was uh, Dorse making your way to the front <laughs> and just fighting to stay in front and enjoy your set like oh she, she messaged me after as well she was like oh that was a great set um she's like i that crowd though i was like yeah, yeah. watching it back she oh everyone in that front row i felt so bad for them just the sheer like weight of everyone pushing exactly because it wasn't like a um it wasn't a flat dance floor they had the the decks on like a bit of a it was like a half meter platform oh. so and it kind of it was only it wasn't that deep it was maybe like three meters deep so there were all these people trying to fight to stand on it so you're not actually seven foot tall oh Is no that what you're saying? definitely oh, okay. not <laughs> i have this thing right where before i play any gig i get the butterflies quite severely in my stomach i love playing live but i also am shitting myself before it it physically manifests in that I have to take anxiety shits before I go and play live. What is your sort of like anxiety routine before you play? Oh, Do you get anxiety? Yes, 100%. I think if you're a DJ and you say you don't get anxiety, you're a liar. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that particular moment, I think the thing that really confounded my anxiety the most was just the fact that I was playing so late in the afternoon. Oh, true. Um, and I think... I think Zach, Cassettes for Kids, can really attest to this because I remember speaking to him just before he went on and he was white as a ghost. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I remember I just, I, I yeah, I <laughs> definitely did the same thing, like went to the bathroom. I think my bathroom, the bathroom is also like a place of solace for me. It's mm. like I can just go and sit, I can scroll on my phone, I yep. can just like kind of calm myself down a bit without having the distractions of other people kind of getting in my way. Mm. I don't know. I get a bit overwhelmed when I'm in like really big social situations. And there were just so many people that I knew at that boiler room. Like I had a lot of friends that came, which was really nice. Yeah. But also like a lot of them got there later. So the closer it got to my set, people were like texting me like, oh, I want to come see you. And I was like, I don't want to see anyone right now. Yeah, please do not look at me. <laughs> don't yeah. fucking talk to me. <laughs> so yeah, I kind of, I was just trying, I definitely, I didn't drink that much that day either. I think I had like one beer before my set and then mm. I had a couple of beers afterwards just to kind of like oh, breathe a sigh of relief. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I definitely think that anxiety manifested itself in so many different ways. But I think it, it the, the one thing that really helped was just talking to the other artists about that. I think mm. like having that conversation with Zach before where he was like, oh, I'm feeling a bit nervous. I'm a bit, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. I was like, okay, I feel really good knowing that it's not just me feeling this way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whereas if you uh, go and ask DJ Boring, he's probably like, I've done this like 500,000 times in my life oh, now. Yeah, literally. I think at the end, um, it, uh, one of my friends asked him, they were like, oh, so did you prepare much of that set? He's like, no, nah, I just bought a USB and just kind of went with it. I was like, are you joking? I've prepared this set like so far in advance. <laughs> did you did you pull it off perfectly or did you feel like you made any mistakes? I think at the end I lost it a little bit mm. only because 
I think like, I had prepared up to a certain point and then I was like, oh, I'm just going to go either like softer or harder afterwards. Mm. And then I just don't think that the tracks I prepared were ones that I was truly like, yes, I want to play this. But I think I also really got muddled up in the preparation process with that whole brief thing that really mm. threw me a lot. Yeah. And so I think the first three quarters of the set I was like really happy with. And then at the end, I think I was just a bit like, oh no, what do I play now? What do I play now? <laughs> but but I think like mixing, I was very happy with. Cool. And I, I think like I pulled it off. <laughs> yeah, I would say the same as well, um, having, having watched that and, and thoroughly enjoyed it each time I have. Thank you. After every live set, there is one very important event at the end of every night, and that is the celebration meal. Yes. What did you have after the boiler room set? That is a good question. Um, I had a spinach and cheese and mushroom goslemi. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. Well, actually, what are your favorite go-to places for drunk food at the end of the night? Oh, that is a good question. Um, well, I, li- I live like right, n- I'd say in the CBD, like we're a straight away from the CBD. So we're pretty spoiled for choice here. But I think depending on what's open, like, Always a kebab. I think that's definitely like a reliable late night option. Oh, yeah. Um, there's a place on King Street in Newtown that does gyros. And they have Ooh. this like, it's crazy. They have this like halloumi and like chip gyros that yes. is just so filling and really yum. Hell yeah. Um, and Hungry Jacks. They have a really good vegan burger. See, like people, <laughs> people shit on Hungry Jacks, but I reckon they're not that bad, right? No, like, it's mad. Right? Uh, yeah. Pe- people think it's like, oh, it's so cheap and dirty and i'm just sort of like but that's the appeal that's why it's so fucking good you know exactly it's kind of like naughty you're like oh i shouldn't be eating this but (laughs) it tastes so good (laughs) go to go to hungry jacks to be naughty and get a vegan burger (laughs) (laughs) it seems kind of counterintuitive speaking of naughty (laughs) i want to dig a little bit deeper into something where i feel like this hasn't been talked about a lot um in your past yes i was wondering whether i could talk to you about this before we started this interview. But now I feel like you have confirmed that we can. Let's do it. And so I would love to ask you about your stint at Purple Sneakers. Yes. As the managing editor for, I believe it was two and a half years or so. You left there quite recently as well. Well, quite recently in the context of like, what, the last 10 years or so. When I first saw that you were managing editor for only two years, that surprised me a little bit because I feel like that is quite a short stint to do for such a sort of high-rise position. What actually happened for you to want to leave the institution of Purple Sneakers? And was there anything nefarious or naughty that (laughs) happened to sort of uh, catalyze the situation? It was a... Okay, so it was a very... um, I don't know. There was a lot going on behind the scenes that I think definitely doesn't get talked about a lot. I think, like, at the end of the day, Purple Sneakers was a business. Mm. So there was one employee, the managing editor. And when I – so basically when I took on the role of managing editor, um, it was after the previous editor, Emma Jones, had left. Mm. So she ended up leaving to get a full-time professional PR job in Brisbane, which is amazing because there's so few PR jobs in Brisbane. Um, So she ended up getting a really good job and she left. And then – Martin was kind of like, oh, can you take over the role as like the interim editor while we find someone else? And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. That's fine. Um, And then I don't know. It just, I think the search didn't really amount to anything. And he was kind of just like, well, do you just want to take it on? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I took that on and we spent a lot of time. Actually, Martin was really good in the sense. So he was the previous owner, Martin Mm Novosel. He's fantastic. He has had such a big hand in like, I guess, 
me being a DJ. He taught me how to DJ essentially. Wow. Um, I took on that role as managing editor and we had a really close relationship with music feeds. So we had, had like a, um, uh, what's the way to describe it? It was kind of like a partnership with them, but it wasn't like an official thing. So they helped us a lot with like getting ad campaigns and oh. that sort of thing. Cool. Um, so yeah, we were kind of related, but not officially related. Um, and that's how I started my relationship with Music Feeds as well, right. through, the, through that kind of partnership there. Um, and so, yeah, so started doing a lot of content with them, kind of workshopping what content was working, what wasn't working. Um, so I did that for a while. And then uh, I think it kind of got to a point. So Martin sat me down and was like, look, I want to actually leave Purple Sneakers. He, he's actually leaving music now altogether. So he's studying to become a carpenter, which is really cool. Wow. What a switch up. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Yeah, okay. literally. Like, I think he's in his early 40s, like, huge career change, which is really sick, cool for him. He's really loving it. Whoa. Um, so and he basically came to me and was like, look, do you want to take on this brand as the owner? And I was like, I think I was 23 at the time. And I was like, oh, okay, this is a really big deal. So. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes in terms of like, yeah, like it's hard to make a brand profitable that doesn't really have much income. Yeah. So I was essentially taking on a brand that didn't really have much of a uh, revenue stream to begin with. And so, yeah, I don't know. I took on, I took on the role I provisional, well, provisionally at first. I kind of just said, look, I just want to have like a couple months to find my feet. Um, I was also really new to freelancing as well. Like, I think I'm pretty good at freelancing now with my so many jobs. But yeah. I think initially when you step into that world, it's really hard to um, manage your cash flow and actually, like, be really responsible with your money. Um, so I think I was just fi- still finding my feet there. Yeah, so I did that for a couple months. And, yeah, it just it really got to a point where, like, I had really put my heart and soul into this website. I'd cut down a lot of my other work. I think I was working about 60 hours a week on purple sneakers doing content. Holy shit. It was like, I definitely, like looking back on it now, I definitely burned myself out really hard, but I was so proud of the content I was creating. Like I was just so stoked to, you know, I I definitely wanted to zoom the focus more in on um, the electronic community in Australia because I feel like, you know, blogs like Resident Advisor, they're great. They cover a lot, but they don't really have this, the, I guess the space to hone in on what's yeah. going on on a local level. Yeah. And I really wanted to do that. Um, so I focused a lot of my time and energy on that. And I just kind of, I don't know, I was just managing my money really badly. And then the website kind of stopped, the whole business just kind of stopped earning money. Oh. Yeah. And it got to a point, like, I, I'm really glad that I provisionally came on board as the editor because I came back to Martin and I was like, I just, I can't make this work. Whoa. I'm burnt out. I'm exhausted. Um, I'm like financially just not in a good place. And he was like, okay, no problem. We'll let's workshop, um, trying to find a new owner. Um, so yeah. And then after like, I think it was about six to eight weeks of like trying to find someone new. And so Stephen Green, who is the publicist who owns the company that Emma Jones ended up working for, he ended up buying Purple Sneakers. Oh, cool. So she ended up coming on board again as the new manager, but like it, I think it worked out perfectly. Like they understood the brand, understood and valued its history and its contribution to the Australian music community. So I think like 
at the detriment of my own mental health, I think it's in the best hands now. <laughs> <laughs> a worthy sacrifice. Yeah. <laughs> Caitlin Medcalf's mental health. Yeah. <laughs> Shit, wow, that sounds like a fucking stressful time. Yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> what was the mental health looking like for you? Were you just sort of head scrambled everywhere? Or were you depressed? Or like, uh, how did you feel? Uh, to be frank, like, I just, I, I think the, the hardest thing for me was that I just really lost the love for it and it all started to feel like work. Mm. And so, and I think, I was very hard on myself too because I had this vision for it and I really wanted to uncompromisingly make achieve that vision. Um, and, yeah, I just really couldn't make it work. Like I I also was paying like really a, a exorbitant rent at the time. Ugh. Like I was paying a really stupid amount of money for rent and um, I'd just moved out of home at the start of the year for the first time ever as well. Oh, no. So I was like trying to manage all of that and I just like – I just didn't leave my house. Like I was just, I was in my room. Like I was really tired. I was really stressed and I was just sad, like constantly sad. Um, cause I really, I don't know. I think the hardest thing about that period for me was just the crushing feeling of, I I just really felt like that I failed. Like I know that I know now I've had a lot of time to reflect and kind of, you know, talk to other people about it that have actually really helped um, put the whole situation into perspective for me. I don't feel like I failed now because I think it was just a situation that I was never going to be able to make work in the first place. Right. But at the time it really felt like a failure. And I think for me, I'd been working with purple sneakers for so long. I had such a big sense of ownership over it that it just really hurt. You know, what made you sort of come out of that mindset? I mean, you, you were talking to a lot of friends about it and they made you feel better about it, but it's, it's hard to get through emotional turmoil that comes with uh, the feeling of a grandiose failure. Yes. Um, how do how do you feel you got out of it? Like, how did you look at it differently? I think the biggest thing that helped was just time, to be honest. Like, yeah. I think I've only really gotten over it in the last half a year. Um, it's taken me quite a while. And I really think, like, the lockdown really confounded so much of those feelings. Mm. Like, just the past year has just, I mean, shifted my perspective on so many things. But I think in the back of my mind, like I'd been DJing for a long, for a while, I'd always wanted to make music, but I just never really had the time or like, I think I always had the time. I just never made the time to do it. And I think for me, the biggest thing was just trying to just forcing myself to look forward, you know, mm. like I definitely am one to dwell on the past and I did for quite a while. And I think over time I just got really tired of dwelling on the past because I was like, it's something that was out of my, con- I realized it was something that was out of my control. Yeah. Like I had, I spoke to Martin Novosel a lot about it. And I think I also felt disappointed in myself, but I also was worried that I had disappointed him as well. Like I'd failed him because right. I'd worked under him for so long. And yeah, I don't know. I just, I came to realize that this is my life and, you know, like it's, it's so silly to think that he would have been that disappointed in me over something that he probably knew in the back of his mind wasn't going to work. <laughs> Um, and I think, yeah, so he's been a great support through all of that. Yeah. I don't know. I think just the prospect of like looking forward and wanting to put all of that energy that I had put into the website, into DJing and learning to produce, that's really just changed my outlook on everything. That's fucking cool. I like that. Thank you. Yeah. I I was thinking, uh, when you said it, you know, owning purple sneakers of all brands at 23 is a fucking huge thing <laughs> so yeah I'd, it, it would have taken way too much for it to actually work um oh definitely and i think i think it's led to really good things because you are now making sensational music 
uh, this gel single that I've listened to, uh, which is part of the uh, Parry Talks uh, VA. By the way, Parry Talks, if you're listening, uh, I see you, man. You're fantastic. <laughs> you do great things. Shut up. Gel was fantastic because it got me into quite a bit of a um, state in my head where musically and sonically, there were a lot of like quite... You know how to make your drums quite present, Thank you. which is something I really appreciate personally. In regards to your new remix coming out as well, yes, do you have uh, do you have any details that you can spare for us? Yes, I do. Actually, I, I was like unsure, but I was reading through the um, release on Bandcamp and they've like written my name in it. So I think it's okay yes. to say it. Okay, um, okay. So Tom Bruce, he's a producer from Sydney who's been living in London. Oh, he's uh, in Tuesday Brunch as well. Yeah, yeah. He's from Tuesday Brunch. Yes. yes. <laughs> so he's putting out an EP. Um, I got to say like this, the EP is insane. I've been very lucky to be privy to that before. I guess when I chose the song I wanted to remix, I was like, oh. I got to listen through it a few times and it is insane. It is a masterclass in production. Like, wow. He is severely underrated, I feel. I took on one of the tracks from the EP. It's, I believe it's the last track. It will be coming out soon. Excellent. Um, it features Maxi Cozy, who's a good friend of mine. We actually oh. grew up in the same area, which is oh, so random. Yeah, nice. yeah. Nice, that's so um, cool. So, yeah, so I did a remix of that and they were kind of like, oh, we're looking for someone to do like a bit of a hard-hitting remix. And I was like, you've come to the right person. Let's do it. <laughs> I'll do it for free. <laughs> so I was like, I... Definitely upon completion, I was kind of like, oh, did I change this up a bit too much? But I'm like really stoked with how it turned out. And I think hopefully everyone will like it. It's pretty speedy. Oh, excellent. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, like when you say speedy, are we talking like, what, you put like a jungle twist on this or? It's like 150. It's like 150. Oh, shit. Um, okay. Uh, Damn. It's like, I don't know, kind of electro, electro influenced. I wouldn't say it's electro, but. Not ghetto house? No, I wish. No. I was like, I was like, oh, I'll keep it more in like the kind of techno realm. When are we going to hear some ghetto house? House from Caitlin Metcalf. Oh, ho- hopefully soon. Honestly, I'm working on like this. Well, I'm actually working on an EP at the moment, so maybe soon. How many tracks? What are you thinking? Uh, so I've actually signed on to do an EP and it's going to come out next year and it's three originals and a remix. Oh, can you tell us who it's with or? It hasn't been announced yet, but it's with a U- <sighs> It's with a little, little label over in the UK. I'm really excited. Just a little one? Yeah. Not rhythm section, is it? Oh, no. Oh my God. <laughs> if it was rhythm section, I would definitely be shitting my pants. <laughs> no, no, it's great. Bradley Zero, I hope you're listening and shout out to you and all your work. Um, I wanted to ask you um, another question about music because in an interview that you did uh, I believe it was in 2018 or 2019 you said that uh, for you music is not really just a way to escape um, but it's a way for you to learn as well so I'd love to know what's your biggest lesson that you've learned from music I think the importance of community Mm. like I think that is something that I've taken from music and like really applied to all aspects of my life like I think community is the most important thing and I think a lot of like anyone's success can really be attributed to some kind of community they have. Like Mm. I think I've worked really hard. Um, Like I have a really strong family community. Like I love my family. We're all very close. Nice. Um, And I think like the cafe that I work at as well, I think that the reason I've stuck around with those guys for so long is that they really value community. Right. And so, and like they, I, I love it. Like everyone's happy. They make sure everyone's happy. That's the most important thing. 
And so I think I, I think not enough people realize that. I think if there's one thing I've learned throughout this pandemic is that, that people are so selfish mm. and people really don't think about anyone but themselves. I mean, that's a very broad generalization, of course, but I, I don't know. It's just really disappointed me to see that, you know, people haven't been looking out for others in their community and like, yeah, yeah I think that's one thing that I've learned from music that I think I could apply to all areas of my life is just value that community. Yeah. I feel like community is, is also quite important for the electronic scene as well because back in the day, right, like we had bands and so you'd really just be jamming with like what, three or four of your best mates all the time. But as DJs, we're just by ourselves all the time. Hey, like- Oh, definitely. It just gets really lonely. And um, being able to make friends with all these other DJs and producers and artists um, in our scene makes it so much more bearable, I guess. I think so too. And I feel- I don't know. It's just, I, I love like there's friends, you know, I won't speak to them for ages and they'll just send me something. They'll be like, oh, I heard this track and I thought of you. Like that, that is like one of the most romantic things you could ever do, you know? Yes. <laughs> and I, I really love that about our community. It's like, oh, you, you hear something and it makes you think of someone else. Like that's so intimate. I love that. What song makes you think about your boyfriend? Oh, that is a good question. <laughs> oh, I think we have like very different tastes, but not at the same time. I would have to okay. say... Um, probably something by Hundred Gex, probably ringtone. That, that always makes me think of him. He is like a Hundred oh Gex song. That's fantastic. He he loves a Hundred Gex. Um, I would actually like to ask you another really important question because I think that you would have a really good perspective on this of all of the guests that I have interviewed so far. What are some of the things that you've noticed about the Australian music scene as someone that observes, analyzes, and writes about it and has done so for many years? Because I feel like as someone that has been working with multiple publications, you've been a very um, close observer of everything and you would see things that other people don't. You know you know what the saying is, is like um, people who are too deep in the cookie jar to see the label, you know? Yes, you're constantly outside of that jar and you can see that fucking label. <laughs> Tell us what you see that we can't. That is a good question. Um, well, I think, oh, that is a really great question. I think Australia has a really, un okay, this is just speaking more generally, but I think Australia has a really unique model in the sense that we have one youth broadcaster that really dictates the success of pretty much anyone who is successful in music in this country. Mm. And... I think it's really interesting getting to kind of experience other cultures and the way that they consume music and kind of seeing how insulated the Australian um, market is. Right. And so I think I think it's been really interesting observing all these like subcultures in Australian electronic music, particularly as they've grown, because I think non-conformity to that marketability has been what has made DJs and producers successful overseas. Mm. Um so I've, I've even just people like DJ Boring, for example, like take one of arguably the biggest producers from Australia. Like yeah. he never pandered to any of that. And I think he really came up in a small community and now he's, you know, overseas doing his thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think we're really lucky here to have such a growing and over, I think just like really overt subcultures that are not, I don't, I don't know, they're not hiding anymore. You know, they're all just like, 
out in plain sight doing their thing. I think like Sydney has a really growing queer community that is so visible now. And mm. I fucking love that. I think that <laughs> I respect that so much because it's been sorely needed for them to be that visible, you know, yeah. looking at like heaps gay selling out the, arguably some of the biggest events of the year. And like, that's so cool to Le see. Fag as well. Yeah, exactly. And house of mints as well. Yes. Like there's been some, there's so many important queer events that I think are now like, you know, now as opposed to like 10 years ago, gaining so much visibility. And I think that's so important. Yeah, but that that is such a good question. With the singular uh, youth broadcaster. Yes. And I'm glad that you've brought this up because <laughs> I have similar sentiments about this, this particular institution. With this, do you think that they've essentially monopolized the avenue of success um, for Australian artists? And if so... How do we how do we remove this monopoly that's in the market? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I think you've got to look at like how I think the first thing is like to look at how the success of Australian artists who are successful by Triple J standards are tracking overseas. Like I've I've heard um, through very reliable sources, I guess I would say that like people like Peking Duck, you know, they get picked up for hundreds of thousands of dollars at an Australian festival, but they're struggling to break the US market. Mm. Because I think, and I think that could be said about a lot of artists um, in Australia. But then I think you look at artists like Rufus, who are doing really well here, and they're also doing really well overseas. So I think, I think the case for Peking Duck maybe would say that they're. I think a lot of their um, brand is very Australian centric, which people overseas don't really get. Mm. Um, there's like a real a bit of a shtick to their live performance. But I think yeah, Triple J definitely has um, the upper hand in like ensuring certain artists have success within this country there was actually an interesting thing that popped up a few years ago i can't remember what it was but there was like a bunch of bands that were oh, there was like the um triple j head head of music at the time was like accused of um trying to like create like a triple j sound and then there were all these bands this that rings a bell yeah yeah there were a bunch of bands that were like making music that pandered to a triple j sound just so that they would get plays and it's kind of like well where's the authenticity in any of that right true so i think true. On the flip side of like, okay, Triple J obviously has a monopoly. It's also like what kind – there are also musicians that are trying to pander to that because they know that that will bring success. But it's a really unique case, mm. I think, the case for Triple J having such a monopoly on the success of Australian artists. And I don't really know what the answer is. Mm. Honestly, just about spending time outside of the country, I think. Like you look at artists like Hatchie – someone out of electronic music who is finding success and like rolling blackouts, coastal fever. Like they've gone from touring here to like relentlessly touring Europe and they're starting to find success over there. So I think maybe the secret is to just not staying here, you know? But then, you know, if, if the secret is to not stay here, then what does that mean for the future and the longevity of the Australian scene? Because, yeah. you know, it's like that whole idea of like the brain drain, right? If we lose our best, um, because they're going to greener pastures over there, it, it means the worst for us here. The, the the scene can't continue to grow. What other particular circumstances do you think need to be in place in this industry for people to want to stay here? Like, I mean, sure, more money, I guess, but is there anything else? I honestly think just like programming diversity is the most important thing. Like, yeah, I think if we really look, if we actually sat down and analyze like what kinds of artists are headlining certain festivals, you'd find they're all like the same ten artists. So, I, <laughs> yep, yep. so I, you know what I mean? Like, I I think that is like the first and foremost the biggest problem. Like, how are people gonna 
catch on to new artists and how is the community going to grow if they're if you're not giving those opportunities to other artists mm. it's like i think a lot of programmers look for um who is trending commercially or like who's doing well on tiktok now or whatever but i think the the real key to bringing more more success to australian artists is actually giving them that platform to find that success yeah because you know like without it it's just going to be the same 10 artists getting booked for everything which is what's happening now yeah sorry i see <laughs> i see some of these lineups and i know exactly what you're talking about it, it really annoys me that i've seen the same names on the same posters for the last 10 years the problem is so it's safe it's like you're i think no like at the end of the day i guess people run a festival because they want to make a profit but it's safe like you know that that's going to bring in people. Why would you not? It doesn't. It doesn't push a sound. It doesn't push the scene properly. Exactly. You know? But at the end of the day, I think that just really goes to show the true intentions of those people booking those festivals. It's not about contributing to community. It's about making a profit off that community. Well, let's hope that, uh, at the very least, that our capitalism doesn't grow any further in severity. Um, <laughs> and and continue to taint the purity of music. Um, but you know what? I think we have a really unique opportunity after. I mean, once all this pandemic stuff kind of blows over because um, travel is obviously going to be off the cards for a bit. So I think festival programmers are really left to really look at what is happening in Australia musically. Mm. And I think this is a really unique opportunity for them to actually consider programming, not only with diversity, but just booking artists that aren't booked all the time. Yeah. And I think especially like, Festivals that only do one city or like do a regional town really have an obligation to book artists from those places. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I'm really interested to see what happens in the next year because I think this is a, this could be a really enriching time for Australian artists. But also, I mean, when money is the most important thing, when does you know diversity ever really have any kind of success? But we'll see. No, I, I completely agree. I think this is a fucking ex- excellent time for everybody to start looking in and actually just growing the scene internally. Yeah, I have to say this, uh, and I'm going to go on record here, <laughs> and I'm sorry that I have to do this on your interview, but novel for fuck's sake, if I see another Papa Smurf headliner <laughs> again. I swear to God, you need to give that. He has accumulated long service leave at this point. Give that man a break. He has tenure. Um, he, has yeah. too, he has too much tenure at this point. Um, but um, appreciate you giving your um, insight onto uh, the perspectives of the Australian music scene. Thank you for that. No worries. If you do not want to answer this, please feel free not to because it is a slightly uncomfortable question. No, go for it. Boiler Room, once it first announced the uh, very first lineup, yes, you know, for Lost Sundays, where I believe it was DJ Boring, um, yourself, cassettes for kids, uh, Lewin, um, and James Pepper. Do you say James? Sorry, Pepper? yes, James Pepper. Yeah. Apologies. After that, there was a little bit of a controversy where some people were complaining about the diversity of this lineup. I would love to ask you, as potentially probably one of the most diverse people on that initial announcement. Um, how you felt about that particular, you know, artist pick selection and how do you feel like they did in response to that controversy? I think initially I definitely noticed a lack of people of colour on that lineup. Um, like mm. I would consider myself a person of colour, but mm. I'm also very white passing. So I think it was kind of like, I don't know, I just, I felt a bit weird about it at first. I was like, oh, but then I was like, it's a boiler room. Yeah. When am I ever going to get this chance again? Like this could be really big for me. So I kind of just... I did. I should have said something, but I kind of didn't. It's so hard to when um, it's boiler room, especially. Yeah, and I yeah. didn't want to ruffle any feathers, but 
I think the way they handled that, to be honest, was like pretty poor. And yeah. I think from conversations that have been had behind closed doors, there's been a bit of other controversy, but I don't want to get into that. Um, but, um, just in terms of like that whole event more broadly. But I think I was really disappointed that they didn't actually make an announcement addressing the fact that they'd included Bria and Honeypoint on the lineup. Mm. They just added them and didn't actually make an announcement about it. And I thought that was really strange. I remember there was some sort of notice on the Boiler Room website, but um, yeah. it wasn't about the addition. I think it was just in response to, right? Yeah, they, di- they didn't. I Like Lost Sundays themselves never actually said anything explicitly about adding them. I kind of just remember looking on the event and seeing that they were there. And I was like, oh, when did they get added? Yeah. Um. So I think... There's, I think this is like an age old problem in Sydney. There's a lot of promoters still, I think whilst the scene is becoming more diverse, there are still a lot of promoters that still aren't really open to a lot of conversations like that. So Hmm. yeah, I mean, I'm glad they took it on board and did put more people of color on that lineup. But I think I definitely understand the sentiments felt by those certain people when they said that they were a bit, you know, shaded by all of that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The lineup stuff seen for Lost Sundays after that event. It seems like they're taking that feedback more into account now, um, which is nice. Yeah. I mean, I've got to say there's a real lack of First Nations people being booked for those events. And I've personally put people forward for those events, but I've been met with a, oh, they don't fit the brief. So musically anyway. So they're being real sticklers for that. But I mean, it's their event. Yeah. 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 Well, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully this this will be uh, a changing sentiment. Yeah. Um, in the near future, because our First Nations artists uh, do need some more exposure. Um, that's definitely, sure. and they're fucking great, dude. Like the ones that I I'm aware of and yeah. have you know been in contact with, like they're fucking amazing musicians, DJs. Like, oh yeah, amazing in their own right. In the last yeah. uh, episode that we have, Damila, who was one of the guests um, on the show, just pulled off a fucking fire mix just like as if it was nothing like she literally just recorded it a few days before the interview and she was like oh i'm done i'm like this is fucking excellent that's um, amazing dj uh pgz as well paul gory yeah uh, you're fantastic fuck i wish i could hear more of you uh in more places but uh, apparently you know, that's just not an option but uh we want to change that we're just gonna make we're that gonna happen. make it happen yes well uh hopefully Despite this lockdown that is happening in Eora right now, you will be able to get back up after taking a very heavy hit um, to your gig schedule. But I do think, uh, well, I hope, I can't guarantee for sure, uh, (laughs) that these gigs that you had lined up will be coming back and that you will have such a busy schedule ahead of you. I hope that you are able to entertain yourself in the meantime. And I hope that at the very least, this interview has provided another form of distraction from uh, the never-ending pain of doing nothing. (laughs) (laughs) No, thank you so much for having me. Like Like I said, I've been looking forward to this all week. Um, it's been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, that's good. And good luck to you too in lockdown. Oh. This is you're a vet, you're a veteran by now. Oh yes, yes, I'm, I'm well versed <laughs> in it. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> um, it looks like I'll just have to uh, do more life admin and just try and find <laughs> other things to call life admin. Hey, <laughs> do you have any tips for me in lockdown? Actually, as someone who's done this many times, the the way to survive lockdown is to just stop. Is to is it's to like how do I say this? So if you're in a car or a boat or a plane, any mode of transportation vehicle, often the reason why people get sick 
when they're in these vehicles is because they can't synchronize their momentum, their internal body's momentum with the momentum of the vehicle that they're in. Lockdown in a physical sense is really just us slowing down and not really doing the same amount of things that we used to do. And if you continue with this like internal momentum that you had of trying to live your pre-lockdown life, it's just going to make you sick. It's going to make you feel miserable. My advice has always been is to just be okay with just taking it real slow and be fine with doing jack shit for a day. Um, try and find a whole bunch of shows. I'm re-watching Initial D at the moment, and this show is yes. fucking amazing. Um, That's so good. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I've been reading uh, this uh, piece of literature. Oh, that, amazing. Uh, yes, one Piece. One Piece. Uh, for all the straw hats out there, I hope you're listening in. And yeah, just like sort of, you know, being okay with just being a piece of shit for a little while. Like, oh, sorry, <laughs> uh, maybe that's the wrong way to put it, but this is how I see it for myself. Um, I agree. It's so hard to slow down. It is. It absolutely yeah. is. I'm, I definitely am not one to slow down very easily, so I think this has truly been a lesson in putting the brakes on, you know? But what's your advice for the listeners out there to get through lockdown? Oh, honestly, if you can afford it, buy a Switch. That, like, oh. changed, my li- that changed my life. I just bought, like, the light one because... I really just wanted to play handheld games and it's, yes. yeah, it's, I'm not much of a gamer, but I've loved it. It's been You've gone through two Pokemons <laughs> yeah. already. Shout out Pokemon, the sponsors Shout of our show. Shout out Pokemon. I'm going to finish the Pokedex. I'm, oh I'm yes, do it. That's fantastic. <laughs> I love that. All right. Well, I'll leave you Thank back you. to uh, collecting all 1,500 Pokemon. I don't know how many Pokemon there are anymore. Otherwise, uh, I hope you've enjoyed the interview. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, We are about to head into a wonderful uh, 70-minute mix that has far more energy than the actual Boiler Room set that you did, which I'm very thankful for. Uh, (laughs) A lot of emotional bangers in here. Um, Some of them, actually, one of them, um, the baby track that you put in there, um, listening to it, I was just sort of like, fuck, I feel like crying at the moment. Um, In the middle of a motorway, if I tear up, I won't be able to drive. You've put me in a predicament. But... (laughs) Um, that's what I was going for I hope you feel something with this mix because I went all over the place with this one yeah (laughs) people thank you once again for tuning into the show it has been such a lovely episode to come back to not only to speaking with uh, the wonderful Caitlin Medcalf but also Tuesday Brunch as well Uh, feel free to stay tuned in I highly recommend it for this wonderful 70 minute mix that we are about to enjoy you've been listening to Spinning Around with Hailey Minogue on Area 3000 with Caitlin Medcalf right now